Welcome to the first episode of Big Screen Batman. In 2013, we ran through 12 silver screen incarnations of Superman with the Superman franchise in the case of Supergirl as part of Bureau 42's celebration of the 75th anniversary of the character. Well, now it's 2014, which is the 75th anniversary of Batman, the other major Golden Age hero that has consistently stayed in publication. I mean, one could argue for Wonder Woman too, but she hasn't had the same theatrical history that these guys have had. So this year, we will be going through 12 major silver screen incarnations of Batman, including the Batman serial from 1943, which is today's topic, the Batman and Robin serial, from 1949, the 1966 movie, which kind of sort of spun out of the TV series. We'll talk about that in detail in March. The four movies that were executive produced and sometimes directed by Tim Burton, Batman Mask of the Phantasm, Catwoman with Halle Berry, and the three Chris Nolan films. So to kick things off this month, we are talking about the 1943 Batman serial. Now this was released pretty early on in the character's history. So just as the Fleischer cartoons impacted Superman by giving him the ability to fly and so forth, this serial gave a lot of impact into the early formation of Batman as a character. Now, if you watch this, and I'm not sure I'm going to recommend that you do for reasons we'll get into in great detail later, you will notice that this version of Alfred is not the familiar version. Most people these days know Alfred as Bruce's surrogate father as the Wayne family butler, already at the time of the murder of Thomas and Martha Wayne, who then raised Bruce Wayne as a son. And very capable, very steadfast, always there to help Bruce. He's got that strong medical background to sew things up and so forth. Well, things were a little bit different. Alfred first appeared in the comics in 1943. And even then, he wasn't Alfred Pennyworth, he was Alfred Beagle, who was short, fat, clean-shaven, bumbling. He was an actor who wanted to be a detective, who figured out that Bruce Wayne and Dick Grayson were Batman and Robin more through dumb luck than actual detective skill. He figured out that they would be somewhere in this area and basically walked in on them as they were changing outfits. They bring him aboard as the family butler, and he keeps trying to help out, but mostly he is a bit of a bumbler. He's more comic relief now, his last name of Beagle was only mentioned in his first appearance in Batman number 16. For the next several months, they don't mention his last name at all. It is reintroduced as Pennyworth after this serial came out. And when they were making this serial, the actor that they had doing it was tall and skinny. So for the sake of consistency, the comics adapted. So people complain about, you know, Spider-Man getting organic web shooters just because of the movie and other changes that seem to happen just because of the movie. Well, you know what? That used to happen. It's been there right from the start. Just as... Superman started to fly because people got used to it from the Fleischer cartoons. Well, Bruce Wayne and Dick Grayson at one point give Alfred a birthday present of sending him to a health spa. So in one issue of Detective Comics, short, fat Alfred goes to a health spa, comes back, tall, skinny Alfred with a mustache. You know, and wow, that health spa really works. So he was completely overhauled to fit in with this. They didn't have a specific backstory for Alfred in the serials. So you don't know how he came in with them. I think you're just meant to assume, if you care, it's the same story as the comics. So that hasn't been rewritten yet. The love interest is also Batman's classic love interest of Linda Page, first introduced in Batman number 5. And she and Catwoman were the only two women who'd caught Batman's attention 
at this point in the comics. These comics are easy enough to track down in the Batman Chronicles series that DC has been putting out or reprinting these Golden Age stories. So it is pretty straightforward to go track these down in order of publication, should you go do so. I would recommend doing so. Judging by some of the trivia that's been listed on the IMDb, I don't think a lot of people have done that, at least not all the trivia submitters. For example, they talk about how as a result of low budgets, you'll see Alfred acting as a chauffeur for Bruce Wayne and Dick Grayson and for Batman and Robin in or out of costumes in the same vehicle. That's consistent with the comics. The only real change they had was that, that logo that they dropped down on the front of their sedan. At the time, Stately Wayne Manor wasn't a mansion outside of town. It was a larger house in the suburbs. So Bruce Wayne wasn't nearly as rich at the time. And that comes through here. Now, I do have some good things to say about the serial. Not only was it formative in terms of Alfred's look, as he is now, as serials go, it was pretty well done. So the serials, as we discussed in the Superman series last year, were done to help keep people coming to theaters week after week during the war times, in particular, when there wasn't a lot of new product. So war times and the Depression era. So rather than try to have a two-hour movie that people would come to every week, they'd make a four-hour movie, chop it into, you know, about 15-minute segments or so, and release those on a weekly basis. So the idea was to get people coming in to see the next chapter in the serial story, even if they've already seen the main feature. And by and large, that did work. Now, one of the issues you get with that when you have a cliffhanger ending, you know, talking about people literally hanging over the edge of a cliff at the end of the serial to make you want to come back next week, is you can get the unfair cliffhangers. There are a couple of those in the Superman story where people are in a rough situation at the end of one chapter, and the next chapter starts with, oh, well, I'm glad we got out of that one, and they walk away with no attempt at explanation. Or, you know, the real unfair cliffhangers are the ones where they reshoot the tail end to rewrite it. This serial doesn't do that. If there is a way for them to get out of it, and there always is, then you will see that set up in the previous chapter. So if Batman is going to escape because Robin regains consciousness after being knocked out and runs to help him, you'll see Robin stirring and moving in the background so that there is that hint that he's waking up again. And other such touches like that. So I do give it a lot of credit. It also has decent visual effects. There aren't a lot of special effects here because Batman isn't Superman. He is just a guy in a suit, so they don't have to go more beyond that. They still have some of the cheap background screens and the rear projection screens that were common at the time and not really a way to work out. But they do have a few things that are very nice touches. For example, in the first chapter, as a means of the getaway, the gangsters have a car that changes color. They hit a button, and this wave of gas passes over the car and changes colors between black and white. I've now watched that first chapter two or three times, and I can't figure out how they did that in 1943, which to me is a sign of pretty impressive special effects. Now, that is one of the only chapters I rewatched, and... There are reasons for that. It's not the performances. This is quite good. This is one of the few cases where you really do not believe anyone would associate Bruce Wayne with Batman. So the way they are handled, it is very distinct and very different people. This Bruce Wayne really plays up that lazy playboy angle. Now, this Batman and Bruce Wayne is played by Lewis Wilson. Douglas Croft plays Robin and Dick Grayson. J. Carol Nash, an Irishman, plays the villain, a Japanese spy. Shirley Patterson, a former Miss California who competed in the Miss Universe contest, plays Linda Page. Knox Manning was the uncredited narrator, and there are several other uncredited roles. At the time, the union rules had actors paid according to how they were billed, but they did not yet have restrictions on, you know, if their part is at least this big, they get at least this much billing. So in an effort to cut costs, the studio only billed the four actors. They just billed the actors playing Batman, Robin, Prince Daka, and Linda Page. They did not bill William Austin as Alfred Pennyworth. They did not bill a lot of 
Prince Daka's recurring uh, subordinates. They didn't build a recurring police officers. The rules would come in later. Had they remade that serial down the road when those rules were in place, they would have had probably about 10 to 15 people build every chapter instead of just these four. Now, it was directed by Lambert Hillier, who is known for directing a few things. He directed Dracula's Daughter in 1936, as well as The Invisible Ray. He did episodes of The Man Called X, of Highway Patrol, of Meet Corliss Archer. I had I Led Three Lives, The Cisco Kid TV series. So he had a pretty decent career both before and after this. So I could see why, in general, it is a pretty decent title. We also have screenplays by Harry Frazier, Leslie Swabacher, and Victor McCloud. And credits already is to solely Bob Kane. So these guys worked on The Lucy Show, on the 1943 Phantom Serial, on Jack Armstrong. So they did have decent credits and decent careers both before and after. So the general plot of this is very much born in 1943. And this is ultimately going to lead to the reasons I find this serial hard to recommend to people to watch. In 1943, a lot of what was coming out in Hollywood was basically war propaganda. Now, that can be done to good effect. It can be done later. If you look at the Indiana Jones movies, yeah, the Nazis are the bad guys. But there's not negative stereotyping. There's none of that. It's here's a group of people who are following compelling leaders for one reason or another and not doing good things with it. This doesn't take that approach. In this case, the villains are Japanese. As I said, it's a Japanese spy. Batman and Robin, because of restrictions in terms of how you can put out serials and other things that were primarily marketed at children, were eventually written as FBI agents who are helping the State Department in fighting the war on American soil. And this is riddled with negative racial stereotypes. This is brutal. Frankly, I'd heard it was bad. I hadn't even tried watching it before I announced this podcast series. I've seen the 1949 Batman and Robin serial, but I hadn't watched this one. It was sitting on the shelf and doing these podcasts was part of my own incentive to get caught up on this DVD library I've been accumulating. This was the one Batman release I hadn't watched previously. Had I tried to watch it previously... I'm not sure I would have structured the podcast series this way. The only reason I was able to push through all this racist crap is because I'd already announced this podcast was coming. Even Columbia has recognized the issue when this was re-released in VHS format. They went through and dubbed and changed a lot of these comments because it is... I'm not even going to repeat what's actually said here. When they re-released it on DVD, they went back to the original film masters so that they could get DVD quality out of it, which meant going back to the original soundtrack, which meant we get the stereotypical slang. The villains are hiding in a chamber of horrors or a house of horrors. It's kind of like, you know, the amusement park rides, not only meant for romantic couples where you just, you know, tunnel of love kind of things. You both get in the little train car or the boat and it takes you through the darkness. This is the chamber of horrors where every horror is American GIs captured by Japanese soldiers. And there are various actions depicted there. You bury it in here and this is where you get the Japanese villain who's got mind control devices that he's using to take control of people. You've got American mobsters who eventually break away from him saying it's very clear the way this war is going to end. I'm not working with you anymore. We're leaving you behind because this is a losing cause. So even the bad guys that are, as long as they're American, recognize that America is going to win this war according to the way this is written. And while that may have been true before the war was over, that it was pretty clear to see who was going to win, in 1943, I can't imagine that was at all clear, especially since the major tipping point was the dropping of the first atomic bomb, or technically second, but the first one that was not done in the middle of an empty desert. So just because of that racial profiling and those racial slurs, I 
can't recommend watching this, not in this form. Now, I know these serials are also on Netflix, both the 1943 and the 1949 versions, at least they are in Canadian Netflix. I haven't watched it there because I do own the DVDs, so I don't know if that's based on the Film Masters or if that's the updated one that was on the VHS. If you could find the VHS copy, then that one may be worth checking out with those racial slurs removed. But this one, you'd need a tougher constitution than I have to do it just for the sake of watching it. It was very difficult for me to get through. So this is one, yeah... For those of you who are familiar with film history, it's almost Birth of a Nation levels here. In some ways, it's worse depending on how you take in the information. Birth of a Nation was mostly visual. This is mostly dialogue. So I can actually see definite debates about which is more racist. If you're not familiar with Birth of a Nation, you can look that up. It was the first major Hollywood epic. It was the first film that used movies to give a message. Typically, you run across it in a film studies course because it was a huge stepping stone in the way movies were made. But typically, you only see it in a film studies course because the message it was trying to send was that the United States fought a civil war and the good guys lost. So it's another one I got through once and do not plan to revisit. This is in that same category. So while I appreciate that this was pretty formative in terms of Alfred Pennyworth as he is today, but aside from that, I'd rather just pretend it doesn't exist. It is, it is brutal. So next month we're going to get into the 1949 serial, which although it is not as well made on a technical side in terms of visual effects and things like this. It doesn't have the same impact on the character that this serial had. I find it's easier to watch. It's a lot cheaper. It's a lot more poorly made, but there's no racism there. That's just, you know, Batman versus mobsters. Straight up, outright, classic crime drama, even if it's much funnier than they ever intended. So please join us again next month when we talk about the 1949 Batman and Robin serial, and then join us on the 14th of the month every month throughout 2014 as we go through the various silver screen incarnations of Batman, or as we're calling them now, big screen Batman, just for the fun of alliteration. So that's pretty much what we have to say about this one. There are a couple other odds and ends in here such as a persona that Bruce takes to go underground, which may or may not have partially inspired the Matches Malone character. But from what we see there, the historical oddities are not worth wading through the racist crap that we have in here. So I would not recommend viewing this unless you are an absolute diehard fan and you go in knowing what you're going to be seeing and hearing. But that's pretty much all we have to say about the 1943 Batman serial, so please join us again on February 14th for 1949's Batman and Robin. Thank you for listening.